1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has brought you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear Father, we pray that you would give us a very vivid view this morning of your marvelous light. And that we would understand what you have brought us out of and into that we may, we may proclaim that light with all our hearts, that we may live as astonished Christians. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. There's a word in the first verse of that two-verse passage. It's an adjective. We're going to spend some time thinking about that particular word, and it's the word marvelous. If you look that word up in a thesaurus, you'll see many synonyms like amazing, Astonishing, awesome, breathtaking, remarkable, spectacular, stupendous, staggering, stunning. Most of us have encountered at least a thing or two in our lives to which that list of adjectives would apply. But most of the things that astonish us are fleeting. Something utterly unexpected and momentous happens to us or around us. And for a very brief time, we find our attention so fixed on that one thing (laughs) that everything else kind of disappears from our awareness. Our thoughts, our senses, our emotions push aside all other input because nothing else in our world can compete in that moment with that one thing. My daughter Jessie had one of those brief, astonishing experiences just a couple of days ago on Friday. She had been in downtown Dallas all day for the final phase of screening for a a two-year inner-city teaching position that she very much wants to get, and you can pray for her about that. After a, a long day of interviews and class simulations, she was walking back to her car that was parked in a garage a good distance away, And as she walked, she was on the phone with one of her very dear friends, kind of talking to her about how she felt the day had gone. Suddenly, a caravan of very big, very black SUVs pulled up to the curb right where she was standing. And, of course, she stopped walking. (laughs) And as Jesse stood there like a deer in the headlights, a bunch of men emerged from those vehicles almost in perfect unison, and then, right after they got out, former President George W. Bush stepped out of the back of the SUV that was closest to Jesse. As He got out of the car, and as he moved toward the building, he walked just a few feet, like five feet from Jesse. He looked her right in the eye. He smiled broadly, as he is prone to do. And he said, how's your day been going? Jesse was so dumbfounded that she barely managed to say, uh, uh, it's going fine, Mr. Bush, to which her friend on the phone yelled, you're supposed to call him Mr. President. 
She was mortified at her gaffe, but she was delighted at that very close encounter with her favorite president. Now, I'm sure Jesse will never forget that little adventure, but as with most such experiences that we have in this life, the all-consuming sense of astonishment fades away quickly and is replaced with all the concerns for all of the mundane things in this life that demand our attention, like where did I park my car? But what if there was something so marvelous, so continually amazing, something that so profoundly impacted everything else in our lives that our sense of astonishment over it never ended and never faded? That very thing is what these two verses are about. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. In those verses, God, through His Apostle Peter, sets before us the compelling basis to live every single day of our lives in unending, unfading astonishment. In the first half of verse 9, Peter sets before us an astonishing Amazing change of identity. That verse picks up where the previous passage left off. He just declared that Jesus Christ is God's chosen and precious cornerstone. The cornerstone of His spiritual house. We who believe in Him are now living stones out of which God is building that house. And the priceless value of God's cornerstone Peter says, is now ours for us who believe. Peter went on in that last passage to say that to those who reject God's precious cornerstone, those who do not believe in Him, Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. To them, He's an intolerable provocation. He is a grievous threat to mankind's worship of self and worship of self-determination. Peter ended verse 8 by saying that such men are appointed to stumble over Christ. Now in verse 9, Peter circles back again to us who do believe in Jesus Christ. He declares four amazing things about our identity in Christ. He says, but you, you all... And I, I meant to tell, meant to tell uh, my brother Patrick earlier that y'all is one, a one-syllable word in Texas. Y'all are all together a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Every one of those same essential declarations was made by God about Israel, His covenant people in the Old Testament. In Exodus 19, immediately before God presented the Ten Commandments to Israel through Moses, He told them that if they would obey His commandments and keep His covenant, they would be to Him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In Deuteronomy 7, as Israel was encamped on the the eastern border of the Jordan River getting ready to cross over, into the land of promise. God told them that they must not intermarry with the pagan people of the land or have anything to do with their way of life or with their idols. 
And then in verse 6, he gave the reason that they must remain separate and pure. He says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. He uses almost that exact same wording again in Deuteronomy 14, verses 1 and 2. But the leaders of Israel and Judah, for generation after generation, forsook that holy calling. Those who had been the builders from the human side of God's earthly house, the symbol of God's dwelling place in the midst of His people, rejected the chosen cornerstone of God's spiritual house, His real temple, His true dwelling place in the midst of His people. But God's agenda, which had been decreed from before the foundations of the world, His agenda to create a people for His own possession, a people of faith called out by God from among both Jews and Gentiles, that agenda continued uninterrupted. And the church of Jesus Christ is the fruit of that ancient and unshakable plan of God. We are God's chosen race. His royal priesthood. His holy nation. We are the people that God has called out to be His own possession. First Peter says we're a chosen race. And the best way to understand that statement in this context is that we are the family generated from God. In simpler terms, we're the descendants of the living God. And we are made so entirely by, by God's doing. Not by biology, not by nature, but by God's choice. God worked in our hearts to bring us to Himself. God picked us. He adopted us. We are His chosen lineage. In the first two verses of this whole epistle, Peter says that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that we may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. That's all three persons of the Trinity who were at work to call us out, to cleanse us, to redeem us, to regenerate us so that we would be the descendants, the line of Almighty God. So we're the chosen line of God. We are also God's royal priesthood. We saw last week in verses 4 and 5 that we've been called out to be a holy priesthood, a holy priesthood unto God in verses 4 and 5, presenting our whole selves as sacrifices on God's altar of entire dedication and devotion. We are completely at God's disposal. In Christ, we who are being built into God's temple, His dwelling place, have also become God's priesthood. We've also become the offerers of the sacrifices presented before God, and we have become the offerings that are presented before God at His holy temple. But Peter highlights here another element of our priesthood in verse 9. He says we are a royal priesthood. Now the perfect royal priest 
is Jesus Christ. Go back and look at Zechariah 6 sometime. It's a fascinating passage. The prophet Zechariah received a vision from God in which he saw a high priest named Joshua receive a crown. He was thus a priest coronated as a king. But under the law of Moses, priests and kings were two different categories, right? In fact, kings were forbidden from being priests. And they were never chosen from among the the line of the Levitical priests. Yet this high priest, whose name was Joshua, or Hebrew Yeshua, which is the Hebrew name for Jesus, was crowned as a king as a prophetic foreshadowing of Jesus the Christ, the one who would be both perfect priest and perfect king. And what's true of Christ, the perfect priest and perfect king, is true of those whose priesthood is through Christ. And that's us. As co-heirs with Jesus, we are a royal priesthood. So we find in 2 Timothy 2.12, Paul says, if we endure, we shall also reign with Him. Revelation 3.21, the resurrected Christ says, He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. Revelation 22, verses 3-5 through says that Christ's bondservants, that's us, will serve Him and will reign forever and ever. We've been called out, we've been chosen by God to reign with Jesus Christ over His creation. To fulfill, in effect, God's original call to mankind to exercise dominion over His creation. It goes all the way back to Genesis 1. But it's never been fulfilled because man has spent his entire history turning his back on God. But God never abandoned His plan. He's fulfilling it through us. We are chosen, we are the chosen lineage of God. We are a royal priesthood, and we are God's holy nation. That means we're a nation, a nation set apart unto God. We're called out, we're made separate from the godless nations of this world to display His character in every aspect, every part of our lives. We're set apart as citizens, not of an earthly kingdom or nation, but of His kingdom. Kingdom that is explicitly not of this earth. Hebrews 11 says that Abraham, by faith, lived as an alien, a foreigner, even in the land of promise. Because he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God, not men, God. Hebrews 13, 14 says, For here, we do not have a lasting city, but we're seeking the city which is to come. That theme is woven throughout both Testaments. We are citizens of a kingdom that is coming. Now this is important. It seems exceedingly important and relevant in an election year in the United States. I believe that we must be diligent citizens in the earthly realm. 
We're not of this world, but for a time we are most certainly in it. And I believe Christians should be the best informed voters and the most reliable when it comes to exercising our vote. I consider that to be part of our responsibility as people submitted to government as we are as unto to God. And Peter's going to deal with that later in this same chapter, First Peter 2. But brothers and sisters, as my brother Derek pointed out this morning, our well-being has absolutely nothing to do with how things play out politically, economically, or socially within the institutions of the culture that surrounds us. Our trust, to use the words of the psalmist in Psalm 146, is not in princes. Our trust is not in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh his God. Be engaged politically. Be good advocates of the justness and compassion for the downtrodden that God displays in all his dealings with men. But beloved, do so without any fear. Without any fear. Fear of anything that men or the institutions of men may do is grievously dishonoring to the God who alone is worthy of any fear. Above all, be joyful, grateful, faithful citizens of the kingdom that is coming and that for us, now is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, Peter says we are a people for God's own possession. You know what that means? It means we're owned. How many of you like the idea of being owned? <laughs> if you know who owns you. We were bought and paid for by God in order to belong to God. And the price of that purchase, which Peter presented in the last chapter and was mentioned and read this morning, the price of that purchase was the precious, imperishable blood of Jesus Christ. That makes us wholly owned, W-H-O-L-L-Y, bondservants of the living God. That is the best thing that could be possible for us. In Romans 6, Paul says we have been freed from sin and enslaved to God. We are enslaved to God. But he tells us that it's a very blessed slavery that produces our sanctification and that has the outcome of eternal life. And you know what's so cool about our slavery? Our master calls us sons and daughters and friends. Not your average slavery. But we're owned. In the eyes of the one who bought us to make us his own, we're not just another of the many amazing things that he happens to own, because he owns it all. The Old Testament word that God repeatedly uses when he calls Israel his possession is a word that applies to exceedingly valuable treasure. It's the word that David used 
King David used in 1 Chronicles 29 when he was about to make his own personal contribution for the construction of God's temple. And he talked about his treasure of gold and silver, and it was a whole bunch of gold and silver. God calls us his people. He calls us his treasured possession. He even calls us his inheritance. Isn't that cool? But make no mistake, that which is owned, even if it is of very great value, <laughs> is completely submitted to the one who owns it. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own you have been bought with the price therefore glorify God in your body we are a people redeemed purchased for God's own possession our whole reason for existence as that people is to bring honor to him and that needs to be very clear to us it is not your life it's his and that's a good thing this new astounding identity that Peter has just laid out is about our calling together, not merely my calling or yours. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're a child of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus died for you personally. How do I know that? In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, the, I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live. He says, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. It's very personal. But make no mistake, Jesus died to make you part of something much, much bigger than yourself. God's declarations concerning our identity in Christ are all corporate. He doesn't say... Each of you is a chosen person, a royal priest, a guy for God's own possession, or a woman for God's own possession. He didn't say that you are a holy nation. No. He says y'all <laughs> are a chosen race. You, plural, are a chosen race, singular. You are a royal priesthood singular you are a holy nation singular you are a people singular for god's own possession and if you're if you were a greek listening to this and you heard that that interchange from plural to singular plural to singular plural to singular, it, it would make a point you would you would get it it would register our western rugged individualism is of no use to god and it has no place in our thinking as the people of god God did not save you so you could be His church. And I'll say yet again what I've said a few times lately. The whole, I can do Christianity without the institutional church thing is abhorrent to God and it should be abhorrent to us. I know I'm preaching to the choir. You guys are actually here. The institution, but you talk to people who, who play this game, right? The institutional church with all of its faults 
is the bride of Christ. It is the holy dwelling place of God. Not the buildings in which we meet, but it most assuredly most assuredly is the redeemed people who meet in those buildings and anywhere else. We are the dwelling place of God. And I'll say this again as well. If you find a group of Christians with no hypocrites in it, no one who's hard to get along with, no one who's struggling against sins that offend God and annoy the heck out of you, by all means, stay away from that group. Because as soon as you go into it, you're going to ruin it. Fortunately, you don't have to stay away because you'll never find a group of Christians that fits that description. See, the real household of God, I hate to tell you, it's made up of people like you and like me. And the simple fact, and it's readily obvious to any objective observer, is that Christians Christians who have even the most basic grasp of what it means to enjoy the friendship and companionship and fellowship of God's redeemed people aren't all that picky about which Christians they hang out with. Because they are so astonished to be counted among the people of God. They're delighted to be around people no better than themselves. Brothers and sisters in Christ in whom they get to see their beautiful Redeemer. Feel free to test me on this next assertion. Professing Christians who are really picky about which Christians they're willing to hang out with don't actually hang out much with Christians. They claim to have a great affinity for those unhypocritical Christians who unwaveringly walk the walk. But since they can't find any, they actually spend very little time with other Christians at all. I see this all the time. I hear that, that protest at the institutional church. Okay, so what part of the church are you spending time with? And the answer generally is none. God bought you at the price of His Son's blood to live to live with and serve with and worship God with those whose crimson stain of sin has been turned white as snow by the only blood that cleanses anything. Do you ever stop for just a moment And think about who God says that person sitting beside you is. In Psalm 16, 2, David, King David, speaking prophetically the words of Messiah, said, As for the saints who are in the land, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Is that the way you look at each other? You and I are sharing a room this morning with God's majestic ones. Tim Keller said something in a message he presented a while back on these same two verses that strikes me as very insightful and very important. He said, in Christ, 
we receive an identity that isn't based on difference. Let me say that again. In Christ, we receive an identity that isn't based on difference. Think about that. In large measure, we Christians in the modern age are eaten up with the same approach to individual significance that consumes the culture around us. We've let ourselves be conned into believing that the key to significance, the thing that makes me really valuable to God and to you guys and to the world around me, is that which differentiates me from everyone else around me. If I don't have something special, something different to offer, then nobody's going to notice that I'm of any particular value because I'm not. And that special thing has to exist in superior measure and quality in me relative to how it shows up in you guys. (laughs) Otherwise, I have nothing to contribute to you. So I invest a whole lot of energy and effort in polishing up and showing off that uniquely valuable thing that I bring to the table. And heaven forbid that you should seem to be showing off the same thing in yourself because you're watering down my value. We engage in a never-ending battle for significance that pits us against each other. And it has the effect of tearing down that which God is in the process of building up. I'll confess something at this point. When I get together with my brothers and sister on Wednesday mornings to discuss the passage for the upcoming message, I all too often find myself trying sort of anxiously to identify every important point to be found in the passage before anyone else can. And if I can actually smoke out that one thing in the text that everybody else in the group missed, wow, my value will will just shine, right? But that never seems to happen. (laughs) And that's a gracious thing on God's part, both toward me and toward this body. But when I'm in that mode, I easily miss or undervalue the marvelous, marvelous things that my brothers and sisters are seeing in the passage at hand. Things that I had not yet seen and quite possibly would never see. Would never see. You know why? Not because they're not there and and the Spirit couldn't work through me to, to show them to me. It's because He wants to show them to us sometimes through each other. It's part of making the bricks hold fast to each other. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Maybe I'm... Maybe I'm the only one in that group that struggles with that particular manifestation of the ugly sin of pride. Maybe not. Some of you men here this morning may resist coming up during the worship to share something wonderful that God has shown you in His Word about Himself. You may be reluctant to come up and bear witness to something wonderful, marvelous that God has done in your life. And the reason you're reluctant to do so is because you don't think that you can hold your own with the seminary grads or lifelong students of the Word who often come up to the mic. 
instead of proclaiming God's excellencies to God and to one another, perhaps some of us are actually more concerned about proving our own excellencies. Or at least about being careful not to prove that we don't have any of those excellencies. But that's a real problem because we don't have any. The only excellencies that we have to talk about are His. And He is continually showing them off to every one of us and through every one of us to each other. We're not here to be innovators, beloved. If you come up with something entirely new to share about God, something that no believer has ever seen before, keep it to yourself because it didn't come from God. As my dear brother Eric Reynolds said to our group on Wednesday, whatever we have to talk about needs to be at least 2,000 years old. I want to clarify something, so bear with me a moment. 1 Corinthians 12 says that God has a whole bunch of distinct, different spiritual gifts that He very intentionally spreads around among the various members of His body, His church. And that the the specific different gifts that He's given to each one of us all come and work together to make His church one healthy, powerfully useful body with Christ as its head through which Jesus is continuing to do His work of expanding His kingdom on this earth. So God does different things through you than He does through me. But we need to be very clear about this. The distribution and the use of those gifts of the Spirit are 100% God's thing, not ours. Just read 1 Corinthians 12. The only active person in that whole chapter is God, the Holy Spirit. That's God's thing. Our thing is to find our entire identity in one person. To worship and adore, and trust, and follow, and imitate, and obey one person. And you know what happens when a bunch of individuals <laughs> start following and imitating one person? They start to look alike. Because they look like Him. And they act like Him. And when that happens, that's when God's chosen race, God's royal priesthood, God's holy nation, the people that God has called out for His own possession, kicks into high gear. <laughs> that is when we actually begin to display His marvelous light so brightly that the lovers of darkness run for cover and those whom He is calling to the light gather from miles around. It's not some inherent difference between you and me that makes us eternally valuable to God. It is the one person who is the same yesterday, today, yes and forever. You and I are not in competition with each other, brothers and sisters. We need to understand who makes us valuable to God and then we need to look for Him in each other. As soon as I stop seeing Christ in you, I stop seeing the one who absolutely defines both of us. 
as soon as you stop seeing Christ in your believing spouse or boss or child or parent or fellow church member, as soon as you focus your attention instead on whatever's left of that person after you take Christ out of the mix, you will see nothing praiseworthy and you'll begin to pick that person apart over the very things, the very things that Jesus saved him or her to overwhelm with himself. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, From now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. He goes on, he says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And then he goes on, he says, Now all these things, these new things, are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We get to share what God has done to, done for us. We're not competing with each other. Run the race well and run it vigorously. But as my brother Kerry says, when you see that one of God's children is limping along with a little steam, or that he stumbled on the path, reach out and take his hand and help him along so that both of you may finish well. The rest of verses 9 and 10, in, in those verses, there are a couple of powerfully important things going on. We'll deal with them fairly briefly. But one of them is Peter's declaration concerning how we received this wonderful, marvelous, astounding new identity. How did we become this people of God? And the answer is, God did something utterly astonishing. He took us who were not a people, and He made us the people of God. He took us who had not received mercy, and He poured out His mercy upon us in Jesus Christ. He called us out of utter darkness into His marvelous light. He didn't just move us from a dimly lit place to a well-lit place. He plucked us out of pitch darkness. And He placed us into His brilliant, astounding, breathtaking light. There are no words that Peter could have used to draw a more complete contrast between what was true of us and what now is true of us in Christ. Neither men nor angels will ever witness a transformation more absolute than this. And by the way, angels have been looking at it for a long time. Astounded. The language Peter uses in verse 10 comes from the Old Testament book of Hosea. God presented a stunning object lesson to Israel through that prophet. He commanded Hosea to marry a harlot named Gomer and to bear children with her. She bore him a son, and then she bore him a daughter, and the daughter was named Lo Ruhamah, which means she has not received compassion or mercy. Then she bore him another son after that daughter, and God named him Lo Ami, which means not my people. And then God commanded Hosea to say of Gomer, she is not my wife and I am not her husband, and then to publicly expose her adulterous ways. That was God's object lesson 
to show Israel and us what we deserve. We deserve for God to divorce us and to have nothing to do with us. But then God, speaking in the first person, says to Israel, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and I will speak kindly to her. And it will come about in that day that you will call me Ishi, which means my husband. And I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know Yahweh intimately. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And you will say, you are my God. God reveals to us through shaming, humiliating indictments what was true of us and what we deserved from His hand. And then He reveals to us what He has made to be true of us. And we stand in silenced astonishment realizing that He has given to us the exact opposite of what we deserved. He has made us the objects of His unending mercy and grace, and He has declared us to be His people, His treasure, His pride. And now, in view of this astounding miracle that so completely changes our identity, God gives us a beautiful purpose to go along with that identity. An incomparable assignment to proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. The essence of our assignment is to proclaim the excellencies of Him. We proclaim His character. The greatness of our great God and Savior. But Peter doesn't stop there, does he? In fact, he doesn't even take a breath before he moves from God's character to God's works. And that should tell us something. We proclaim the excellencies of Him who has done something astounding. And that astounding thing is that the thing that we've been looking at all along this morning. He called us out of utter darkness into His brilliant, amazing, marvelous light. He took us who had not received mercy because we didn't deserve mercy. And He opened the floodgates of His mercy and compassion and grace and love toward us in Jesus Christ. He took us who were not a people and He made us His chosen race, His royal priesthood, His holy nation, His treasure. So we celebrate. We celebrate. We publicly proclaim both His character and His saving work. And those are not two separate things. I hope you see this, friends. Throughout the Bible, when God's people are celebrating and praising His character, His name, they are celebrating His character in view of His works. Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. That's His character. That's who He is. And without taking another breath, David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. And then he spends the whole rest of that psalm talking about God's redemption. 
His work of mercy. He has separated our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Micah 7, verses 18 to 20. Listen to this. Who is a God like thee? That's your name. Who is a God like you? Who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights, he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depth of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. If we had time, we could easily find hundreds of passages that demonstrate this point. When we proclaim the excellencies of our great God and Savior, we are always proclaiming both who He is and what He has done. Especially, especially, what He has done for us. 1 Samuel 12.24 Only fear Yahweh and serve Him in truth with all your heart for consider what great things He has done for you. To whom do we proclaim these things? This, this marvelous God and this astounding salvation. To whom do we proclaim these things? Just to the lost? Well, certainly to the lost, but... <laughs> Also to each other. I think evangelism at the very heart of it is right there. Evangelism is proclaiming the excellencies of Him who has saved us so marvelously. That should give you plenty to talk about without any stretch. (laughs) If you're genuinely amazed, astonished, awestruck by someone, does anyone have to twist your arm to get you to talk about them? Evangelism should not require a lot of arm twisting. It just requires a lot of looking. Are we amazed to wake up day after day standing in God's marvelous light? Are we astounded by God's redemptive mercy toward us that pulled us out of utter darkness to abide forever in His breathtaking light? Are we astounded when we see Christ in each other? In his message, just about done, in his message on these same two verses, Tim Keller cites Martin Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones says, when he asks a man, are you a Christian? And the man responds, yes, of course I'm a Christian. Lloyd-Jones says he sees that as a very bad sign. He acknowledges that there are, of course, many different personalities and a particular response like that isn't necessarily determinative. But he says that when he asks someone if he's a Christian, what he prefers very much to hear is, yeah, isn't that amazing? Isn't it astounding that God has saved the likes of me? If we get who God is, who we were, and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, we will live every day in utter astonishment we've spent a lot of time in recent weeks talking about where we go to behold God so we'll be astonished (laughs) to see him most clearly and most fully we must go to his living and active word 
through which the Holy Spirit reveals to us his character, his works, and even his thoughts, 1 Corinthians 2. That word is the Bible. But we also get to see him in one another. It's not the pure, unadulterated version, but we get to see him in one another. And so God calls us emphatically to be together throughout all of this life with our fellow saints. If you're not experiencing this amazement, this astonishment that we've been talking about, if you're not experiencing it every day, it's not because you don't have cause to. It's not because you don't have access to the marvelous light, the marvelous, astonishing light of God that irresistibly provokes us to amazement. It's because you have turned your eyes away from that astonishing, breathtaking light. And beloved, if that's the case, all you have to do is turn around and look again and never stop looking. Father, thank you for this identity. (laughs) We can't get our hands around it. It's just amazing what we were and what you have made us in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for plucking us out of the domain of darkness and planting us firmly in the kingdom of your beloved Son, the kingdom in which he will forever be the light. We look forward to that day when there will be no other light that men recognize. And we pray that until then, Father, you will shine brightly through us as we proclaim the excellencies of our great God and Savior. We pray it in Jesus' name.